Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray briefly before we uh, get started. Uh, God, every time we hear from you, we want, uh, we want our hearts to be ready. We want to have eyes to see and ears to hear. So God, uh, by your spirit, would you help us to see uh, not only uh, the truth of your word, but also help us to see the beauty of your word. Help us to receive it into our hearts. Help us to be changed and transformed by it. And help us to, uh, most of all, see the beauty of Christ through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are going through a series on the book of Hebrews, and... Uh, you know, I knew this would kind of be a long service because we had a couple things and we have communion later, so uh, this will actually be a shorter message because of that. Uh, but I, I decided to just do a, a shorter passage and uh, I changed things up a little bit. You know, a, couple, a lot, many years ago, you know, if you're in like, I guess uh, into like leadership books or like business books and things like that, uh, there's this book by Jim Collins called Good to Great, and that book is basically about how do you turn good companies into great companies. And the first chapter of that book is, is a really interesting name. It, it bas he basically says, good is the enemy of great. Okay, good is the enemy of great. One of the things that hinders companies from becoming great, he says, is that many companies are actually quite good. And so they settle for being good. But if you want to take a company to the next level, uh, you have to seek for greater things. Now, when I read that, I thought it was actually a very appropriate uh, illustration of maybe the struggle that we oftentimes have. Uh, we are going through a series in the book of Hebrews, and we are calling this series, Jesus is Better. And one of the things that probably hurts us in terms of uh, our faith, in terms of our Christianity, in terms of our, our walk with Jesus, one of the things that probably hurts us is that we settle for good rather than seeking that which is great, namely Christ. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote about this in The Weight of Glory where he says, the problem of uh, humans is not that we are hard to please, but the problem is that we are too easily pleased. And so what he says is, we fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at a sea. Hebrews is written to a community that is discouraged, that's afraid, that's struggling. Some are on the verge of falling away from their faith. And what the author wants to do ultimately is to encourage his community and remind them of this very simple truth. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is a better word. He is the better rest. He is the better priest. Today, what we're going to look at is why Jesus is the better hope. Hope. Why do we need hope? I think it's a simple question, but it's a really important one. Uh, if you just think about it, not spiritually, but just kind of on this micro level, uh, we, we need hope. We need things to look forward to. 
My wife, uh, she likes it when we have like a, a vacation planned. Uh, and the one of the reasons why she likes it is because she says it gives her something to look forward to. Uh, in the midst of some of the you know, difficulties, trials, stresses that come up in life and in her job and in her vocation and things like that, she says having something to look forward to helps her deal with some of the things that she has to deal with in that day, in the present. That's what hope does. It causes us to look forward so that we can kind of deal with these present-day struggles that we have. There's an image here towards the end of this passage in verse 19 that I think also illustrates our need for hope. Verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that can enter into the inner place behind the curtain. Now that picture of an anchor I think is a really appropriate one for showing us why we need hope. If you've ever been on a boat, if you've ever gone uh, fishing on a boat or anything like that, what the captain usually does is they want to find a great spot to fish and then the captain shuts off the en engine and then drops anchor. The reason for dropping anchor is because the water constantly moves. And so if you don't drop anchor, basically the boat is going to move wherever the ocean moves and you are kind of at the mercy of where the waves are pushing you. If you've ever gone swimming at a beach, you spend some time in the water and then you look back to shore and you go, oh, where's my spot? Where's my stuff? And you realize that the water has pushed you way down and your stuff is actually that way, not that way. Because that's what water does. Unless you are anchored to something, you are going to get swept away. Life is a lot like an ocean in that there are going to be waves. And sometimes these waves are small and subtle. Other times these waves are quite large and quite violent. And in the midst of that, in order to not be moved by these waves, what you need is an anchor. You need hope. When we feel like we are being swept away because we're disappointed with life, things didn't go our way, we have trials, hope keeps us tethered so that we don't lose our bearings. Without hope, the waves feel too strong and it's just too easy to give up because, have you ever tried swimming against the ocean's current? It, it feels useless and you just get exhausted and you just get tired and eventually what's gonna happen is you just kinda give up. Now, um, you know, I've talked to some younger people and especially people in their 20s and people who have graduated college and you know, I'm starting to notice a pattern with people who are uh, of this age. And uh, even at this last weekend, uh, as I was talking to some, some people of this age, uh, the common, the prevailing feeling that I think a lot of people have, and maybe some of you have it here, is I feel lost. Right? I feel lost. I don't know if that's a generational thing. I don't know if that's an age thing. I don't know if it's a, our cultural thing. But I meet so many people who kind of, either express the sentiment of feeling lost or actually say, I feel lost. I don't know what to do. Uh, now, there's no monolithic reason for why they feel lost, but it could be, you know, you think about it, if you, uh, if you planned on going to med school or to law school and if you don't get into it, then your future plans are crushed and you're kind of like, I don't know what to do next. Uh, this uh, one guy this past weekend said, you know, up until now, the next step has always been planned for me, right? Because you go through school and you have the next grade. And then you graduate high school, he says, and I was like, I knew I was going to go to college. And then after college, he's like, my expectation was to go to med school. But then he didn't get into med school, and so he said he went through a period where I was like, what am I supposed to do next? I feel lost. I don't know the direction I'm supposed to go. I think a lot of people feel like that for a variety of reasons, and maybe the reasons are different. But when people feel lost, I think what our culture tells us and the narrative of our culture tells us is if you feel lost, then you need to embark on a search of some kind. Uh, 
You have to find your way. You have to discover who you are. You have to find your identity. And uh, that's oftentimes what people start to do. Now, I might suggest that the reason why people feel lost is not because they haven't found themselves. The reason people feel lost is not because uh, they haven't gone on this search. I think the reason people feel lost is because they lack hope. They lack hope. If hope is like an anchor and you don't have hope, then it, it is like you are in the middle of an ocean and you are moving wherever the water goes. And so what do we need? We need hope. We need an anchor to ground us in something, especially in the midst of small and big storms. This passage, I think, gives us two reasons why hope is something uh, we can actually attain and hope is something that we can have great assurance of. The first reason that this passage tells us we can have hope is God is trustworthy and therefore we can rely on his promises. We can rely on the fact that he will keep his promises. Now, one of the challenges of the book of Hebrews, I think, is it assumes a certain level of knowledge of the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, then you may not really understand what the book of Hebrews is referencing. Uh, we already saw that in previous passages when the author referenced Israel's story in the wilderness. Uh, in our passage, what the author is going to do is he's, he's going to reference a story in Abraham. Now, in Jewish tradition, Abraham is known as this great man of faith. He is known as somebody who trusted God. Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, leave your home and go to a foreign land. But that directive is also accompanied by a promise. And God says, along with that, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham, he trusts God's promises. He goes to this foreign land. Then in Genesis 15, God says, look toward heaven, number the stars. You see how many stars there are? So shall your offspring be. Now, the only problem with that is God is saying you are going to have a lot of offspring, but he was married to Sarah. Sarah was a barren woman, and she could not get pregnant. She could not bear him any children. And as a result, in the course of that, they had their doubts about, is God really going to keep his promise? God said we are going to have the, a lot of offspring, as numbers of stars in the sky. But how is that possible? Because Sarah, she's getting old, and up until now, she has not been able to bear a child. Eventually what happens is she does get pregnant and they have a child and they name this child Isaac. And I think this is the reason why Abraham is known as a man of faith because the climax of Abraham's story and why I think people probably respect the lengths that he was willing to go in terms of how he trusted God and his promises is God says something unimaginable. God says something unthinkable. He says, go to the land of Moriah, Abraham, and I want you to take your son, your little boy, Isaac, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. That aspect of the story is certainly the most dramatic, also the most fascinating for a variety of reasons. I think there's a philosopher, Kierkegaard, who wrote an entire book reflecting on this story. And uh, Abraham does it, right? And he gets ready to bring Isaac to the altar and sacrifice him. Eventually what happens is God stops Abraham and he supplies a substitute ram to be offered as uh, a sacrifice so that Isaac would be spared. But here's what happens after that episode, and this is what our passage is, re is referencing in verses 13 to 14. God says after that in Genesis 22, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Uh, that's what this passage is quoting. Now, why is the author of Hebrews referencing this story in particular? 
He wants to remind this community, this struggling community, that God is trustworthy. God is going to keep his promise. Just as God made a promise uh, to Abraham and fulfilled that promise, he makes a promise to us, and you can be sure he will fulfill that promise as well. Now, what's interesting is that the way God made that promise to Abraham, he swears an oath, and he swears that oath by himself. Uh, Have you ever thought, isn't it strange that God would have to swear an oath? If God is trustworthy in his character, why does God have to make an oath? Why does he swear an oath? Why do we swear an oath? We usually swear an oath because we are liars, right? It's easy for us not to tell the truth. Uh, A few years ago, I had to serve on, uh, I did jury duty, and I served on a grand jury. And, uh, you know, I was also selected to be the foreperson. If you don't know what the foreperson is, it's the person who, like, swears in the witnesses. So every time a witness would walk in, uh, I would have to ask them, can you put your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand? And I would say, you know, uh, do you swear to tell the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And people would have to say, I do, right? Right. Why do people have to do that when they are swearing in testimony inside of a court? Because the assumption is most people probably lie (laughs) with great ease, and therefore swearing an oath is saying, I will tell the truth, and if I don't tell the truth, then I'll suffer the consequences. Now, in a legal system, in a courtroom case, the consequences would be perjury. Outside of the courtroom, people make informal oaths all the time. They say things like, I I swear to you, I'll do this. I swear on my mother's life, right? I swear on my child's life that I am telling the truth or that I will do this, right? When people say that, what are they saying? I mean, it's not really going to happen, but essentially what they're saying is, if I am lying, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, then may something bad happen to my mother or to my child. If I am not telling the truth, I swear to God, if I am not telling the truth, that may God judge me or do something bad to me. See, since God's character is trustworthy, there really is no reason for him to make an oath because, as it says in our passage, it is impossible for God to lie. So why does God make an oath here? Why does God make an oath to Abraham? You know what he's doing? He's condescending to our level, to Abraham's level, in order to give assurance that I will do what I say. I don't have to do that. But just to give you extra assurance that I will keep my promises, I will make an oath and I will swear it by myself. Because there is no greater person to swear by above God. So God has to swear by himself. Now, just like we take people's statements more seriously when they make an oath to us, God is making an oath to us. And maybe this is something that Abraham would have taken more seriously. That's why the language in verse 17 is so strong. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it. He guaranteed it with an oath. When it comes to God's promises, when it comes to hope in the Bible, hope is not just optimism. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is an anchor. It is anchored in one who is trustworthy and unchanging and faithful and one who is guaranteed to fulfill his promises no matter the cost. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, whereas we swear by something else, God swears by himself. That's why verse 13, uh, that's what verse 13 says. If you look at Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, something really strange happens there. Uh, in the ancient world, you have these covenants, and the way you ratify these covenants is they did, they did it in a way that I think modern people would probably find unusual. 
uh, in Genesis 15, what they did is they took some animals. They cut these animals in half, so it's a you know, bloody endeavor. And uh, basically, what the, the reason why they do that is they say, if one party does not fulfill the promises of this covenant, may that party be cut just like these animals. That's, what, that's why they do it. Now, they do this in Genesis 15. The animals are cut in half. But the unusual thing, and commentators note that the unusual thing that happens in Genesis 15 is it says a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes through these dead animal pieces. Now, what is that meant to signify? Theologians say that this smoking fire pot, this flaming torch, is a visible manifestation of God. It's what they call a theophany. It means that God is the one who is walking through these pieces. It's as if he is saying, I promise to bless you, and if you are not blessed, may I be like these dead animal carcasses. That's how much I'm going to fulfill these, my promises, no matter the cost, even at the cost of myself. Now, God's word should be good enough because he is trustworthy. It is impossible for God to lie, but he adds another layer of assurance by making this covenantal oath. He goes so far as to say, if I don't keep this promise, may I be cut off. Now, it would have been unimaginable for, let's say, an Israelite to think that God would actually go through something like that. Right? Abraham would probably have been shocked to see how God's plan unfolds but that's ultimately what God would do in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, even though we are the ones who broke our covenant, our covenantal oath because of our sin, because of our disobedience, God is the one who bears the covenantal curse. That's what the cross is about. That's why Jesus dies on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is being cut off. He's being cut off from the Father. He's bearing the weight of the curse of judgment and death. Why? so that he would fulfill his promise, so that we would be blessed. In view of the lengths to which God was willing to go in the person of Jesus, we also see the lengths that God would be willing to go in order to remain faithful to keeping his promise. He does not simply keep his promise when we are obedient, when we are faithful, but he keeps his promise even in spite of the fact that we are rebellious and we are covenant breakers. And that's why, friends, that's why this hope is something concrete. That's why it's anchored in something that is more just optimism. It is not contingent upon us. It is not contingent upon our obedience or how good we are, and that's why there's assurance. Rather, God's promises are entirely contingent upon Jesus Christ, upon his obedience, upon what he accomplished on the cross for us. Now, this leads to the second reason why we can have hope. According to verse 20, it says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, now, I keep saying, I'm going to talk about Melchizedek later, later, right? His name keeps coming up. Next week, I promise you, we'll talk about this strange guy, Melchizedek. But what this passage says is Jesus is a forerunner, right? A forerunner is somebody that goes before you. Uh, they experience something first so that other people can follow. What this passage says is Jesus has gone behind the curtain into the inner place, and what it's referencing here is the temple. In the temple, there is this curtain that separated the most holy place from, I guess, the rest of the common areas, and what that most holy place room signifies is the very dwelling place of God. It is holy ground. Nobody is ever allowed to enter into this room except, the one exception would be on Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday. 
On this day, the Day of Atonement, what the high priest would do is go in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people and for the sins on, of himself. But for the most part, nobody was able to enter into this place. On this curtain, by the way, there is this image of cherubim, and what that cherubim signifies is that the way uh, to God's presence was guarded. Um, when Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, you have these cherubim, and they are guarding the entrance way back into the Garden of Eden, back into paradise. And this curtain was a reminder of that, that you have been exiled because of your sin, that you can't come into the presence of God because of your sin. Now, here's the amazing thing about what this passage says. Jesus went in. Jesus went in, into the inner place of the temple behind the curtain. He went in as our high priest. He offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all. And as our forerunner, what that means is now we can follow him. He made the way. There's a mixing of metaphors in this passage, but let me return to this metaphor of an anchor for a moment. It would kind of be as if uh, a captain of a boat went out to sea before all other boats to find the best spot to drop anchor and to find fish. Uh, you know, the marine world, uh, you watch those shows, I like those shows, like the fishing shows. Uh, that world is very competitive, and you don't usually share information like that. Uh, but it would be as if Jesus went ahead, dropped anchor, and said, come, follow me, drop your anchor there as well. You want life, you want joy, you want security, you want hope, you want peace, come, follow me. I have made a way for you into this inner place and you can come too. That's what Jesus does as our forerunner and as our high priest. Uh, you remember how I mentioned there's a ton of people, I think, who feel lost, and maybe there's some people who feel a little bit lost as well. Um, the solution is not to make your way, to find your way, to create your own identity. You know, that's, that's our cultural response. That's a Western individualistic mindset. I have to find a meaningful career for myself. I have to find, find a spouse for myself. I have to have children. I have to experience the world or achieve all these great things, and then I won't feel lost anymore. But you know if you're a believer or if you're even contemplating thinking about becoming a believer, you should know that that's not how the Bible says this is how you find your way. The Bible actually says lost people don't find their way, but lost people ultimately have to be found. We have to be found. And God wants to find the lost because his love drives him to pursue the lost. How do we know? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be our forerunner on our behalf. And not only does Jesus make a way for us through his work on the cross, he now leads us to the presence of the Father in the most holy place. He's like our captain who tells us there's a better hope out there. Why are you anchoring your souls to these things? Because when the violent storm comes, that anchor will not hold. Let me show you that there is a better hope that you can anchor your souls to so that no matter how violent the waves, no matter what happens in life, the trials that come, in this case, persecution that may come, death that may come, joblessness that may come, financial struggles that may come, whatever it is, what Jesus is saying, anchor your souls to this hope. Because then you will have your bearings. Jesus anchors us to a God who is faithful to his promises, who will one day complete uh, the fruition of what he promises. And what, what does he promise? He promises no sin. 
No struggle with sin. No death because of the resurrection. No tears. This is a big one. No regret. No regret. What does he promise in Christ? Love. Belonging. Peace. A sense of home. Joy. Security. Awe. Wonder. Meaning. Glory. Resurrection. That's a guarantee. It's not optimism. It's not wishful thinking. It's a guarantee. Why? Because of the character of God, but also because God proved how faithful he would be to his promises when he sent Jesus to die on a cross for us. That's where we should anchor our hope, in the heavenly places where Jesus entered as our forerunner on our behalf. Let's follow him there. Let's pray.